Well, let's pray once again before we get into God's Word together. Dear Lord, we are truly thankful once again to be together this morning, and I pray, God, just that your Word would accomplish its purpose to everyone who receives it here at our church, and once again, all those who are listening online. And we're grateful, God, to be able to dig into your text, uh, rain or shine, and be faithful to it. And I pray it would uh, be encouraging and also uh, convicting, God, for us to remember and recall and be renewed of the great God that you are. And even as we were just reminded from the offertory, what a loving God you are. And uh, we're so thankful, God, for this time now. We pray this in Christ's strong and precious name. Amen. Well, most of us are familiar with the old nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty. It's a favorite of some, and it tells the tale of an egg who took quite a tumble, right? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty back together again. Apparently, this little piece of poetic wisdom has been around for thousands of years, And in fact, it's been translated and it's been in um, eight different European languages, different versions of it. But in its very early stages, uh, Humpty Dumpty started out as a riddle. And it asked the question, what, when broken, can never be repaired, not even by strong or wise individuals? That was the riddle. And the answer, as even a child would know, is an egg. No matter how hard we try, a broken egg can never be put back together again. As author Brent Waters suggests, one might say that a version of the Humpty Dumpty story is found in the Bible, and we call it the fall of man. He writes, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. The claim was that they would possess wisdom and be like God, But when the dust settles, Adam and Eve are not perched on a lofty plane. They have fallen. And no matter how hard we try, things can never be put back together again. End quote. There's truth to that, isn't there? We as humans are fallen, broken people. We're marred and stained from the inside and out by our sin. And with the fall of Adam and Eve came some major colossal changes in the world, particularly in man's relationship with God. The greatest treasure in life, personally knowing the Creator God and being in perfect fellowship with Him, a relationship of loving trust and obedience, it became something very, very different after the fall. Great was their fall. Our sermon text as we consider our series today of God's story of beginnings is Genesis chapter 3, if you're not already there. And we're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday in Genesis chapter 3. Our passage specifically is verses 8 through 13, but we're going to read along with that the end of last week's passage, verse 7. So if you are able to, as we honor God's word, please stand with me going to read our text. 
Genesis 3, verses 7 through 13. And it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. We're continuing corruption uh, this this morning, and it's part two of corruption in Genesis chapter three. And uh, the title last week was "What is wrong with us?" Uh, today we are highlighting these colossal, huge changes that happened after the fall, after the original sin of man. And so we have two points today, pointing out these changes that that happened following man's original sin. The first one is shame and fear. Shame and fear enter into the picture, verses 7 through 10. And in verse 7, we recall those fig leaves, right? And they tried to sew together some leaves and cover, cover themselves. Well, those fig leaves were inadequate to cover them or to remove their guilt before God. And later, we're going to see that the Lord God actually covered them with skins from slain animals. And this is a a preview of the truth that sinners can be restored only by blood. Only by blood. Only blood, which is death, which is sacrifice, can atone for man's sins. It cannot be done by man's own meritorious actions. And we'll get to that again in a few weeks uh, at the end of chapter 3. But verse 8 in our passage today says, that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves from the presence of God. So they eat the forbidden fruit. Their innocence is lost. They cover their nakedness with fig leaves. The man and woman are ashamed to be naked in front of each other. Okay, so that's one thing that happens too, right? They're shameful in front of each other now. At the end of chapter 2, it says the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Uh, but now there's a breach in their relationship with each other for the first time after they eat the forbidden fruit. And who re-enters the scene here in the garden but the Lord God? By the way, I've pointed out in chapters 2 and 3 that throughout, repeated multiple times, God is spoken of, described as Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, right? Um, This is in contrast to what the serpent calls him in verse 1 of chapter 3. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, he leaves out the personal name Yahweh. And in verse 2, how does Eve respond? Along with um, the the other things that she leaves out and that she adds to God's word. 
um, she calls him God instead of Yahweh God. Okay, just something to note there. So as God approaches, somehow his movements in the garden were audible to Adam and Eve. Okay, they heard him. The text describes God as walking in the garden, which could mean a, a couple things. Okay, the first thing that it could mean is um, it's, it's, this is anthropomorphic language, which is uh, human physical traits that are being assigned to God uh, in order to convey, convey something so that we could understand. Okay? Um, so it was like someone walking in the garden. God's movements did make a real audible sound, but not like his literal feet were rustling through the grass and leaves. Okay? So that's one way that we can understand this, um, this phrase here. On the other hand, this could actually be a, a theophany which is God taking on some physical form as he comes to the garden to speak to Adam and Eve. His divine presence is physically there in some tangible form, and he is literally walking through the garden. Whichever one it is, um, I lean toward the first, that it's uh, anthropomorphic language, language used so that we can describe, um, understand who, who God is and what's happening there. And I say that because the Bible says later that no one has seen God, literally. Um, so in any case, whichever one it is, Adam and Eve were able to hear him coming. It was in the cool of the day, which some translators say signifies, signifies um, late in the evening or sundown. Uh, what do they do? What do they do when they hear him? Well, they go scurrying when they hear God coming, trying to hide themselves among the orchard of trees in the garden. Whereas before there was nothing to fear, nothing to be afraid of, nothing but fellowship, nothing but freedom in God's presence. Now they go fleeing from him. They're trying to keep away from God. And this is a huge change. This is a colossal change in their lives and their existence. Verse 9 says, The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And of course, the all-knowing, omniscient God he knows exactly where Adam is, but he doesn't ask for the purpose of gaining information. He asks in order to draw out answers from the man. And notice also, importantly, that God calls out and confronts the man, not the woman. There's emphasis seen in the repetition of the text. He called to the man and said to him, and they could have left out the and said to him, right? But it's, it's repeating that uh, to to emphasize, he's speaking to the man. Again, Adam holds primary weight of responsibility here because, one, God created him first, and he directly heard the prohibition from God. And two, because as the first in creation, he is the authority figure in the husband-wife relationship. So there's some irony found in that God first questions the man, whereas the serpent sneaky one that he is, first questions the woman. In verse 10, the man says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So the man answers, and he actually answers honestly and openly. Uh, when he heard God coming, he became afraid because he was naked, which was never a problem or issue before. But he explains that that's why he hid himself. A fear along with shame enters into the picture here. 
He has shame. They have shame before one another, Adam and Eve do. And now before God, they have shame in their nakedness. And this is um, a new sense, a new feeling, shame and fear coming into their, their hearts and their lives. Colossal changes that followed the fall of man. Okay, the man no longer comes running to God, but now is running away from God. He doesn't feel freedom and delight in the relationship, but rather fear and dread. See, man is now alienated from God, their creator, rather than in fellowship with him. Okay, this is what the original sin brought about. A separation from God rather than unity. And so, by way of application, I ask you, have you ever noticed in your own personal walk with the Lord, isn't it difficult to enjoy fellowship with God while you are in sin? Can one be continually disobedient to God and experience any sense of joy and delight in relationship to him? mentioned this in the past, even on a human level, right? Whether it's between parents and children or husbands and wives, children and parents, wives to husbands. If, if we are in sin with one another, there's some, there's some sense of, of breach, separation, brokenness uh, in that relationship. It's hard to enjoy each other's fellowship, each other's company, even between friends and family. Sometimes when, for example, somebody you know has told a lie to you, it's hard for that person to look you in the eye or for you to look them in the eye if you're the guilty party, right? Like after you've told that lie and then you meet the person a day or two later, it's hard to look them in the, in the face because you know that you've, you've sinned against them, right? And that happens in different circumstances and, and different um, relationships, again, between children, parents, husbands, and wives. And so lesson is that we cannot practice sin at, at the same time enjoy that sweet fellowship with God. And First uh, John uh, puts it this way. You can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to read a few verses here. First John chapter 2, John says in verse 3 of First John 2, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Hey, by this we know that we are in him. Hey, the love of God has been truly perfected. You get to experience the sweetness of that, of that love, of that relationship, of God's love for you and your love for him. Um, and so John is, is pretty straightforward uh, in that passage and throughout his letter there. So one cannot be practicing sin. I'm talking about unrepentant, undealt with sin. Okay? And at the same time, really enjoy who God is and enjoy that relationship and enjoy being in his presence. And so this is a reminder to us to daily um, deal with our sin. First uh, John, uh, once again, if we confess our sins... And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The Christian life is a lifestyle of repentance because we do continue to sin and we should not minimize uh, our, our sin, but rather come clean before God and truly experience uh, just 
wonderful blessing uh, of his forgiveness and his sanctification and his cleansing and be restored in our relationship with him. So uh, that's one thing that we can take away from this, uh, even as we get started here and um, conclude our first point. Colossal changes after the fall. Okay, this is something that has uh, started way back when. Shame and fear before God. Broken fellowship between God and man. Hostility uh, rather than togetherness. And so that is one change that has happened. And then the next thing in verses 11 to 13 is this shifting of blame. Shifting of blame uh, in your outline there, in your notes. That's the blank. Verse 11 God asks the questions, right? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So he asks, even though he knows the answer. And uh, just to show you another example, in the very next chapter of Genesis, uh, the first description of murder in the Bible after Cain kills his brother Abel. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And God certainly knows the answer to his question, where is is your brother, right? But he is providing an opening for Cain to acknowledge his sin and his responsibility. And such is the case here in the garden. God knows what Adam did, but the purpose is to draw out a response from Adam that confesses his sin and for Adam to see his need of forgiveness. But, verse 12, instead of owning up to his sin and disobedience and answering, yes, yes, I did, what does Adam do? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And he points to the woman, and not just the woman, but the woman whom you gave to be with me, God. Quite the contrast from chapter 2, verse 23, right? Whoa, man to the woman whom you gave to be with me. Um, So he's directly pinning the blame on Eve and indirectly on God himself. The blame game has begun. Sin's effects on our human nature, we sin to cover up our sin. And the woman does no better, does she? Yahweh Elohim addresses her next, pointedly asking her, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done. And interesting that Eve has a similar blame-shifting response as Adam, right? In this thing, she follows Adam's lead, right? In this situation before God, she blames the serpent. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And even though what she said is basically true, it implies that it's, it's not my fault, God, This talking snake made me do it, right? The old cop-out, the old cop-out. Used to this day, the devil made me do it. Like Adam, she does not own up to her own disobedience and ask God's forgiveness. So Adam blames God and Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. (laughs) Uh, Actually... Actually, next week, that's uh, in question. We'll, we'll look at that next week. But the point is, neither the man nor the woman looks to themselves, right? They point the finger to others, even to God. And this is the origin of that age-old human pastime of blame-shifting. 
It's a quote, Ray Pritchard. He says, In the thousands of years since Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, nothing has really changed. Human nature is the same. Passing the buck is in our spiritual bloodstream. We do it now because Adam did it back then. He established the pattern. Disobedience, listen to this, which leads to guilt, which leads to shame, which leads to fear, which leads to hiding, which leads to blaming others. So before we leave this point once again, um, application and just uh, questions to think about. When you disobey God's word, and this is committing sin, right? Whether it's sins of omission or sins of commission. Not doing what I'm called to do and told to do or doing what I'm not supposed to do. Do you ever find yourself blaming others for it instead of looking to yourself? Have you ever found yourself blaming others, whoever it is? And so examples of that is, well, I didn't like what he said. Or I didn't like the way that she spoke to me. Or she was lying. Or he's a liar. Right? So I'm justifying my sin. I'm blaming the other person. He disrespected me. How about blaming circumstances or conditions? Right? Well, I just wasn't feeling well. Or, you know, work was extra busy today. Or I was going through a hard time. Or I was, I was just tired. Okay, God understands all that, right? But does he want us to blame the conditions or circumstances if we've sinned? How about blaming parents or blaming our upbringing? Okay, this is something that I had to deal with uh, when I got saved, when I became a Christian, uh, because a lot of my anger as an unbeliever was towards my upbringing and my background and my parents and our home. And I had a lot of, um, a lot of just just bottled up anger and, and uh, just bitterness there. Okay, so what happens when you become saved? You own up to your own sin, your own responsibility in how you responded to that situation. Right? And you go to your parents and you seek their forgiveness for your part. Okay, not, not blaming them for how they did things, but you take ownership of, of your part um, in, in the situation and acknowledge your rebellion and your cursing and your, your wickedness and your your anger, uh, sinful anger, right? And there's freedom there, folks. There's freedom. No more shame, no more f- fear. And you forgive uh, in your heart. And uh, this is not to say that you never talk about uh, things with, with your parents if there was things and issues to deal with. Um, but you do it in, in a manner that, that speaks to the love of Christ and the good news of Christ that anybody can be forgiven. And so um, some people have um, just... Hard, hard issues with that, even into adulthood and grown-up adulthood. I'm not talking about 20s. I'm talking about 40s, 50s, and 60s. So um, that is one, one way. Blaming the past, maybe it's a little bit related to that, right? Oh, it wasn't fair, my, my, my situation. Um, by the way, that's a forbidden phrase in the, the high and home, that something's not fair, right? Uh, blaming the way that God made me, right? I don't have such and such a personality, so that's why I'm like this, and that's why I'm, I'm justified in not doing what God tells me to do. Well, I'm not like this other person who gets to do all this, right? Um, ultimately, all of these blame-shifting ways are pointing the blame at God himself, 
right? Which indirectly is what Adam did. Um, some might even point the finger to Adam and Eve, right? And blame them for our sin and our problems. Like, if it wasn't for Adam and Eve, I wouldn't be like this. Okay? But even that very thought and attitude is blame shifting, isn't it? It's blaming someone else, our very first parents, uh, for our sins, when in reality, we are sinners by nature. Yes, we've inherited from Adam and Eve, uh, but we're also sinners by choice. In other words, we would have done the same. We're no better. We're actually worse. That's the reality of the situation, according to the Bible. And so again, blaming Adam and Eve is uh, futile. It's paramount to blaming God himself. <clears throat> so this leads to uh, a concluding thought for today. Um, We've seen these uh, colossal changes uh, between man and God following the fall of man, the original sin of man. Shame and fear enter into the world um, and the shifting of blame. Uh, all of these things in man's relationship to God. Alienation, separation, spiritual death. All of these things um, happened and were epic Grand changes, which were not there before. But a concluding thought question that I want to ask is this. And maybe some of you have thought about this, uh, or maybe not. But why did God put that forbidden tree in the middle of the garden? Okay, you want to look at uh, chapter 2, verse 9. Again, this is the rewind of creation week. And it says, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there must be some reason, some important spiritual reason, that God would forbid something and put it right there, right? Where it's in full view. Adam and Eve would see it all the time. Um, it was not just within reach, but within easy reach. Why would that be? Well, we know that God didn't do this to, to tempt the man and the woman. God does not tempt. That's what Satan does. That's what the serpent did and does. He is the tempter. Author and TMU professor Grant Horner offers this answer. Perhaps the tree was put in the middle of the garden because it was forbidden. And he goes on to explain, usually if we want to forbid something, we hide it away and make it hard to get to. Right? Whether it's liquor or guns or money or secret plans, etc. In our household, we sometimes have to hide the video games as parents. But if we put something in a central place, in a visible location, it is not necessarily because we are providing access to it, per se. Sometimes we put things in a central, visible location because its presence reminds us about something important. And he gives the example of street signs, stoplights, warnings, trophies, Crosses on steeples, baby pictures hanging on walls. These serve as reminders. These are signs that are pointing to something else, something important to be kept in mind. It may be that the tree with the forbidden fruit was just such a reminder. 
Okay, so what was the forbidden tree a reminder of, right? It's the thought questions that follow. And uh, I'll quote him again. He says, primarily, it reminded Adam and Eve, even in their dominion over creation, to reject any idea of independence from God. And this is the reminder, right? They are perfect lords over creation, but they were not lords over God. The tree was not only a sign, but it was a real thing that if they partook of it, would bring death, just as God promised. But it was not designed to bring death like a guillotine, a gun, or a bomb. Everything the Lord made was what? It was good, right? Very good even. The tree was a good thing. It was not designed to kill. It was designed to keep the heart of man turned towards a Lord who is greater, who is a greater Lord than man. Amen? So he says we should not think of the garden like this. Okay, Adam, you have, a, you have rule over all this stuff of creation, from nectarines to armadillos, from the deep blue sea to lovely Eve, but you cannot eat the fruit because it has the power of knowledge which God is jealously withholding from you. That's not the way we should think about this situation. Rather, we should think of the garden more like this. Adam, you have unimaginable freedom and one centrally located and very simple reminder that your freedom operates under God's ultimate rule and authority. You are Lord, small l, but he is the Lord. Okay, so the forbidden tree had a positive function, not a negative one. It was not just a prohibition, but a reminder functioning as a prohibition. And this shows that God is not merely some jealous forbidder, but he is a gracious Lord, end quote. So if we think about another tree that is often misread, the very cross of Christ, and the cross that's huge in front uh, of our, or our ch- on our church building, okay, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil looks promising, but it brings death to partake of it. The cross looks like a failure, but it brings new life. And just like the forbidden tree, it didn't have some magic fruit on it, magic properties that poisoned man to death. The cross is not a magic trick that saves. Rather, the cross is the sacrifice by which God satisfies his justice and he makes us right with him. He atones for our sins through the blood, death, and sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. So all who would partake of him by turning from their sin in repentance and turning to God in faith and trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior of the world. That's what we should be thinking about today as we consider these epic, colossal changes that happen between God and man, a breach, an irreparable damage, um, right? Irreparable fall could not be put back together again except by the work and person of God. We're going to see some of the specific consequences of sin in the next uh, few weeks for the serpent, the woman, the man. But once again, God's story of beginnings has revealed to us the origin of corruption, man's fall from grace 
which was sin of historic proportions. And yet God is a gracious, loving God. He doesn't wish for any to perish, but he invites all sinners to come to faith in him through his son, Jesus Christ. So I want to close with that good news today, and uh, we'll look ahead at those judgments in the next couple Sundays. But um, let's praise God together as we, as we pray. Father, thank you once again for showing us uh, through your word, uh, even through the incredible, unspeakable sin that Adam and Eve committed, um, that even though that's the case and we are sinners, wicked ourselves, um, there is grace, there is mercy. Uh, you have done the work of forgiveness and atonement and salvation. And we have nothing to do but fall down on our knees and thank you and praise you and put our trust evermore in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and ask for a grace, God, to, to live more and more for him. So thank you, God, for your clear word, and I praise you for that good news, and uh, I pray that just uh, we've been blessed uh, by our time in your word today. In Christ's strong name we pray. Amen.